ask you to turn to the book of Jude, just to the left of Revelation. Good morning, everybody. So, I brought something with me today. Anybody know what that is? Uh, Bonnie Wood thinks this is a pizza box, but anyway, um, so I, I, uh, I'm going to share some donuts, just not with everybody, but with some. And they're cream-filled. And so if you're a cream-filled fan, just for a second, will you let me know if you're a cream-filled donut person? Okay? You are? Okay. There's a... uh, Adults, you can raise your hand, too. There you go. All right. Except for you, Matt. Because your son wants one. Any, Any adults want one? Oh, wait, wait, I need some of those napkins. I dropped some. There we go. Sorry. All right. Hang with me here. Here you go, Jude. Chocolate filled. Anybody? Any adults? Adults. Okay, Wes. Get up and walk toward me, Wes. Come here. Walk toward me. I'm not going to walk all the way to you. Okay. Here. I don't know. Anyway, I've got two more. Any other adults? Want? Okay, Lenise wants. There's a Boston cream, Lenise. Sorry. Um, I think I gave multiple. Okay, come see me later. And some of you are going, what's the point? There is a spiritual point. Hang with me just for a second. Um, I believe Jude is the cream filling between 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation. If you will, we read um, at the end of 2022, first, second, and third John and the W4 going through that. John communicating the heart of God and who God is in a powerful way. And then you come after third John to the book of Jude in between the book of Revelation, which uh, unveils for us uh, the current church age as we see Revelation 2 and 3, and as well as the future in regard to what will be leading up to the second coming of Jesus. One of the most neglected books of the New Testament is what we're about to embark on today and is the book of Jude. And so somewhere around you was a piece of paper um, and I want to ask you just to grab that. Um, I'm going to kind of walk through it. I I decided to just give it to you. Um, Some of you need to share that, mainly because when we get to some of the verses here in a moment. um, So today we're going to do quite a bit of backdrop to kind of understand, because we do need to fully understand why this was written. From the beginning of time, truth has been under attack. When Satan rebelled against God in heaven, he did so against God's ordered design and plan of things and the way God had established things. After he was cast from heaven, he came here, and he came immediately, pretty quickly, to the Garden of Eden. Everybody look up here, y'all are reading this. I don't want you to read it, okay? I'll tell you when to look at it, okay? Look at my lovely face. What a lovely thing to see as 2023 has begun. All right, I'll tell you when to go back to the page, and then you can read it as much as you want after this. This, is, this page is my gift to you as the year begins. All right? So we know that when he came to the garden, he immediately came to Eve, and he began to, began to chip away at the nature of God and what God had said and communicated. Pretty soon after Eve gave in, um, Adam was present. It says it there that he was nearby. And instead of maintaining his relationship with God, for he had not sinned, he decided that he'd rather be like Eve in her fallen state. And so he took the apple and he ate of it. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. History reveals the continuance of this ever since that instance in the garden. All the way up, To this January day, January the 8th, 2023, the battle for truth against the lies has continued to be waged. So today we will begin to walk through one of the most key books for Christians that allows us to prepare ourselves for false teaching and any kind of instance like that that would would begin to to rob rob God's influence in our lives and our understanding of Scripture. And so we need to be prepared for this. Jude is the fourth shortest book in the New Testament. It's behind 2 John, 
3 John, Philemon, and then you have Jude. It is 25 verses of tremendous wisdom that we need. And we will see in this short letter, in the next 10 to 11 weeks, the manner in which the church today has decided to not embrace truth and to give in to culture and to give in to other things in many ways. The church today um, often, you can just see it all around us, has capitulated to culture and to man-centered marketing ideas about what the church is to be about, where feelings and tolerance and philosophy have become the more dominant process. But God's truth must matter to us in every way. For we are to immerse ourselves in it. We are to speak it. We are to live it. We are to obey it. We are to hide it in our hearts. We are to walk in it. We are to love others in the truth. And we are to preach it in season and out of season. Jesus spoke of this great necessity. Now you can look at your page in the middle there. Listen to what Jesus said. His last moments before things got very chaotic... As he's praying, he prays this prayer in John 17, 17 to the Father for the apostles and for the church. Sanctify them in the truth and your word is truth. So when Jude writes this letter that we will begin to study today under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, it was written in a day of deep, dire need. It was a day like ours where all around him there was a there was creeping into the church teaching that was drawing people away from the purity of the gospel. And so he calls the believers back to the truth and to fight for the truth. And we will see that Jude is going to go strongly at a group of people called apostates. In today's day and time, if you're familiar with church lingo, there's something called deconstruction. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's what is happening a lot today, particularly among the younger generation who were raised into the church and, and they are deconstructing their faith, tearing down their faith and, and, and wrestling with things and trying to figure out stuff. And so he's going to deal pretty strongly with those who have been in and around the church who now hold to a different thinking and idea and have walked away from things and are influencing others to join them in walking away from the truth. Now Jude's stance on these people does not mean at all that we are not to love people really wrestling with issues of faith and have walked away. We are to love those people and pray for those people. As a matter of fact, at the very end of this, we'll see about eight or nine weeks how we are to love and pray for and reach out uh, to those people who are wrestling with this. All of us probably in our life know somebody who has walked away, right? They were in our lives walking with us and all of a sudden... They're not, they're not just not at church, but they're posting things on social media that are anti-biblical and anti-what they used to believe and how they used to walk. And so in all of our lives, we have people like this. We are to continue to pray for them, fight for them, love them, share the gospel with them. We have to be patient with them as they are in this new state. But I want to say this, and I want to stress it. Regardless of the people that we love and our feelings and our love for them, we are never to soften our stance in regard to biblical truth. We hold that. Yes, we're brokenhearted over where they are right now, but we are not to ever lessen the truth and the magnificence that is connected to the Scripture. We are in a war for truth. And to avoid the spiritual carnage that comes from what is false, we need this counsel that Jude gives us. Jude's greater concern in the latter part of A.D. 60, probably 67, 68, 69, somewhere in there when he wrote this, was not persecution, though persecution was incredibly rampant. Nero sat on the throne in Rome. He hated Christianity. He blamed them for the, the burning and the tearing down of Rome. And, and there was a lot of, lot of things happening under his reign. And yet, Jude's great concern is not persecution. Jude's greater concern is that in the church, there had creeped in people teaching things that were no longer 
the purity of the gospel. That was the greater concern. And so this is what he's going to address. This is what he's going to call to likely these Jewish Christians to come back to and fight for the truth. Satan uses all kinds of methods in today's world to fight against the truth. Demons, lost people, the media, false feelings about things. Some nations are directly opposed to Christianity. Health organizations lie. Governments do that. There are weak pastors and ministers. Social media he will use. And the sexual perversion and philosophy that drives our day, he will use that as well. So the greater danger, according to Jude here, is that there would be a losing of the purity in the heart of the truth of what the Bible teaches. Look with me in Jude 3 and 4. This is kind of the theme of this. We're just going to touch on this for a second and we'll deal deeply with this next week. Jude 3 there. It's on your page and also in your scripture there. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, he was going to write about another theme about salvation. And now he says, I found it necessary though to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. As I began to, I put a lot of time into this next 10 to 11 weeks as we will walk through this, um, a, a tremendous amount of time. As I began to go back and look at what Paul wrote and what John wrote and what Peter wrote and began to look at some in, in the things that Jesus said, it became very clear as I began to walk through all of those speakings and the writings that were there that this battle for truth is going to continue until the very end. Are you with me? Do you, do you understand this? The world is not just going to get better, 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 and better, and then Jesus comes back. As a matter of fact, the teaching and the writing of, of the authors and the teaching of Jesus shows that this contention and this battle for truth will continue until the very end. Now look at your page there, and I want to show you how this comes about. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew seven fifteen: Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Matthew 24, 11, and many false prophets, this is in the context of speaking about the last days and end times, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now look what Peter said. You turn your page over to the other side. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Here's what Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He would later write to Timothy, look at 1 Timothy 2.3 there. Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. John would write this, early AD 90s, close to mid AD 90s of the first century, 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe. Look up here for a second. He's saying this. Don't believe everybody who claims the name of Jesus comes into town and begins to say something. 
Don't just buy what everybody says. Don't go into whatever's become the most popular thing in 2023. There will be things in 2023 that have never been popular before. Somebody will have some ministry. People will get all excited about it. They'll write a book. They'll have conferences. And there will be deep flaws in that kind of teaching. So John writes, don't just believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, a question would come up right now, and it's this one. Is it really a possibility in the West where you've got well-educated people that have come to know Jesus that they would buy some lie about Jesus and fall away into apostasy? What do you think the answer to that is? Absolutely. If you don't believe that, after we're done with Jude, we're going to spend seven weeks looking at the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Those seven churches are about 30 to 40 years old. There are seven of them. Jesus specifically addresses five of them who have false teaching in their church. Only two of the seven are healthy. This is 30 to 40 years in after Jesus has ascended. So again, I remind you and I, this battle for truth in the midst of the church has been going on all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and it has been going on in the earliest days and years of the New Testament church. So yes, that is the case. Now if you'll look at your page, there's a few other verses I want us to to look at this morning by way of introduction before we get into our second introduction about Jude this morning. So the battle rages on. The world is not going to get better. This battle is going to continue to rage. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, 1 through 12, kind of talks about this. But look what he writes. This this is NAS, not ESV. This is a little bit of better understanding for us. No one is to deceive you in any way. For it will not come unless the apostasy or the falling away comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul Paul wrote a second letter to Timothy. Look at the verse there. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. He tells Timothy, but realize this, Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and they will hold to a form of godliness. It will sound and look like godliness, but it will not be, for they have denied its power Paul tells Timothy, you avoid such people as these. Look at 2 Timothy 4, 2 there. So in the midst of that kind of world, he says, Timothy, you preach the word. You be ready in season and out of season. You You correct, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. This continues all the way to the very end. Look there, Revelation 17.3. There will be seven kings in the end that will rise up. They will submit themselves to the beast and they will oppose Jesus and look what is said there, these are of one mind, these kings, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast, and they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, amen? For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him will be called and chosen and faithful. So look up here. I wanted to go through this, Specifically and slowly, 
to remind you and I today that this war that we are in is not going to end. It is going to continue. And so therefore, it is incumbent upon us to be boys and girls. Boys and girls in the room this morning, sit up in your chair. Listen to me. I might give you a donut later. I got some left over. If you're six in the room this morning, you're eight in the room this morning, you're 80 in the room this morning, we have to be children, students, and adults of truth, of right doctrine. This is the great battle that will continue to rage against Jesus and against Jesus' people. It will continue to the age. And so for us to ignore this reality in favor of softening the call for Christ followers so that we make sure that we always just feel good. Sometimes we need to feel good when a heavy text of Scripture falls upon our lives, that we're okay with that. That that's also one of the things that lifts our faith and guides us and equips us to be ready for the days ahead. If you would look at your page, and I remind us, we are not to be passive, we are to be active. Look at 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Boy, look at our culture. Do we have some strongholds in our culture right now? Guess what? We have been equipped with the right kind of weapons to speak into that, into the lives of people and into the church, into our culture. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that gets raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So I remind us that we are not passive. We are active engagers in regard to knowing the Scripture and connecting our lives to the world. Listen. The longer Christianity is here, the battle will continue to rage within the church. And so Jude reveals here, writing this, at the end of somewhere probably around 67 to 68 to 69 AD, as he writes this letter, he is revealing that the battle for truth was strong three decades in to when the church had been started. And so he needed to address it. How strong will this battle be? Well, look at one more verse. Look, 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 Luke 18, 8 there. This is Jesus speaking. The battle for truth as we near the second coming will continue to go. Jesus says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is how strong this battle is about truth. That when Jesus, Jesus himself speaking here, when I come back, will I even find truth on the earth? Will there be people who love me enough and love my word enough and love the glory of God enough that they will walk and embrace and stand upon the truth of Scripture? And will he find faith? And I tell you, a weak gospel helps no one. It won't save anyone, nor will it equip anyone. Therefore, the softening and weakening of gospel teaching is never to be the course for the church, for a family, for a student ministry, or for anything else. So I want to... Do you all feel that, what we just walked through? Do you feel the, the weightiness of that? We need to. Now, as we feel the weightiness of that, that the battle is going to continue to rage on... I want to remind us this morning that our king has already won the victory. And he will win it in the end. And so our confidence rests that yes, the battle rages. But our king, our sovereign one, has won the great battle. So let me give us some good background. Again, um, I don't apologize for my preaching Probably in seminary, they would probably tell me, don't have two introductions, but 
what does a seminary professor know? They don't know anything. And so I've got two introductions this morning that I wanted to give. I wanted to, to give us the one that calls us to be reminded of the war in which we are in. And now I want to give an introduction to this important, significant book called Jude. Who's the author? Well, the Hebrew name from this is Judas. It didn't become a very popular name anymore in Jewish circles after the, the Judas that betrayed Jesus. The Greek name is Jude. Jude Grissom, don't think that you're important. For the next 10 or 11 weeks, you're going to hear your name all the time. You are important, but be humble, okay, as we call out your name. We know that Jude um, was a half-brother of Jesus in Matthew 13, 55, and in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we are told that Jesus had several half-brothers and half-sisters. We know the brothers' names there. They are probably likely in order of birth. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, who we would know as the writer of this epistle, Jude. So his oldest brother is James who becomes the pastor of the Jerusalem church. You'll find him in Acts chapter 15, leading the Jerusalem council. And he has written an epistle of five chapters, great one that Mark taught us over the last several years. And so so Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, is the author of this. His brother is James. So Jude is not going to be as famous in church circles as James was because of his influence, but he gives his identity connected to his older brother or his oldest brother. Um, And and so as people would read this, they would know about who James was, and and so Jude would be connected with the work that was going on in Jerusalem that was centered around the name of Jesus that James was leading. It appears that Jude and his brother, sometime after the resurrection came to faith in Christ and became followers of Jesus. Acts one twelve and following says this, They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, the James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and listen to this, and his brothers. So something had happened before Jesus ascended, after the resurrection. Brothers that at one time in John chapter 7 are telling Jesus, if you're doing all these great miracles and doing all these great teaching, you need to go up to Jerusalem and let everybody see this. And they were trying to force Jesus to kind of move things along a little bit Faster, at some point in time, it's clear that they come to faith. And I wondered what it must have been like for them after they came to faith to realize my half-brother is the creator of the universe who spoke the world into existence. And I wondered what conversations they used to have after they came to faith and the faith that was there because of their connection to Jesus. What we know as the book of Acts reveals the work of the apostles through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the planting of the church and the establishing of the church. I believe the epistle of Jude is a definition for us of the acts of the apostates. Acts reveals the work of the Holy Spirit through people establishing churches as the gospel went forth in the world. Jude's going to tell us about the apostates influencing the church negatively 30 years into this. So with every book of the Bible, we should always know the background of things and so that we can know the great truths that are within the text. And so we need to know this background. And so Jude was written by Jude, the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus leading him. If you read Second Peter and you read Jude... On the same day, that's legal, by the way, to do that. You will see that they have the same themes. As a matter of fact, it's pretty well understood 
that probably Jude wrote his epistle first and it had a significant influence upon Peter, even though Peter is Peter, because many of the themes that are there, and it was likely what we understand written a little bit earlier than that, that Peter used a lot of what Jude had written as in, in, in regard to these themes. Let me give you a little bit of background of uh, Jude's grandsons, and then we're going to get into the text. It's just 11.02. We have all afternoon, right? We do? Okay, all right, all right. Eusebius, quoting the writings of a guy named Hegesippus, says that Emperor, Emperor Domitian, who reigned in Rome from AD 81 to 96, was persecuting Christians greatly in AD 96. And he was looking for people still connected to the royal line of David in order to arrest them. And he found out that there were some grandsons of a guy named Jude who was the brother of Jesus. So Domitian has the guys go capture them, get them, and they bring him into his presence. As they come into his presence, he found them, uh, these grandsons of Jude, to be humble farmers who were uninterested in politics and overthrowing Rome. We believe that Jude probably was the youngest son of Joseph and Mary, perhaps being born around A.D. 10, somewhere in there. So his sons would have been born around A.D. 35, and so his grandsons would have been born probably likely sometime around A.D. 60. So the time Domitian is on the throne, uh, his grandsons, Jude's grandsons, would have been somewhere around 35 years old in A.D. 96. This is what Eusebius writes about Jude's grandsons. He's writing this at the early part of the first century. There still survived some of the kindred of the Lord, grandsons of Judas, who according to the flesh was called his brother. These were informed against as belonging to the family of David, and Evocatus brought them before Domitian Caesar. For that emperor dreaded the advent of Christ, and this is talking about the second coming of Christ, as Herod had done. So he asked them whether, as he brought the grandsons into his presence, he asked them whether they were of the family of David, and they confessed that they were. Next, he asked them what property they had or how much money they possessed, and both of them replied that they only had 9,000 denarii between them, each of them owning half that sum. But even this, they said, they did not possess in cash, but as the estimated value of some land that they owned, consisting of 39 places like our acres, out of which they would have to pay the dues and that they supported themselves by their own labor. And when they held out their hands before the emperor, exhibiting as proof of their manual labor, he saw the roughness of their skin and the corns raised on their hands by constant work. Being then asked concerning Christ and his kingdom, what was its nature and when and where it was to appear... They returned answer to the emperor, love this, that it was not of this world, nor was it of the earth, but belonging to the sphere of heaven and angels, and would make its appearance at the end of time, when he shall come in glory and judge the living and the dead, and render to everyone according to the course of his life. Thereupon Domitian passed no condemnation upon them, but treated them with contempt, as too mean for notice, and then he let them go. At the same time, he issued a command. Listen to the influence that your, your life and my life can have upon powerful people. So these grandsons of Jude get into the presence of this emperor who is giving persecution and is afraid of the second coming of Jesus happening in his time. They come and show that they're hard workers, they're humble men. Listen to what it says. And when they were, at the same time, he issued a command And he said, stop persecuting the church. He was so moved by the grandsons of Jude. And when they were released, they became leaders of churches, as was natural in the case of those who were at once martyrs and of the kindred of the Lord. And after the establishment of peace to the church, their lives were prolonged during the reign of Trajan. That's from Eusebius, chapter 3, 20, a historian. 
So that's a little bit about that background. Let me give you just a little bit more here. As we walk through this text, Jude is going to do something different. He's going to quote from two places that aren't inside the Bible. He's going to have two things in here. Um, he's going to tell us in, a, in several weeks from now. This is going to be a fascinating study. I'm just telling you, you don't want to miss any of this. When Moses died, Satan came and wanted to take the body of Moses, obviously to do something. And the archangel and Moses had a disagreement, um, or uh, the archangel and Satan had a disagreement about this. And so this is quoted in something that's called the Assumption of Moses. Now, the only surviving document of what's called the Assumption of Moses um, was found um, just, just probably a couple hundred years ago. And so we don't have any kind of original thing. There's a huge gap. But we do have something from somebody who wrote something, uh, Clement of Alexandria, who died in 215 A.D., where he writes in his writing about this in Jude, or about this, says when in, in uh, the Assumption of Moses... He says, when Michael the archangel, disputing with the devil, debated about the body of Moses, here he confirms the assumption of Moses, and here he is called Michael, who through an angel near to us debated with the devil. And so so Jude's going to refer to that um, when we get to that. He is also going to refer to something that's called the book of First Enoch. Um, both of these are found in this Jewish literature called the Pseudepigrapha. Um, both of these books, The Assumption of Moses and First Enoch, hear this. Please hear this. And if, if you want to argue with me, Ryan, after, at Ryan Phillips after, the, after churches, he's ready to go for you. Ready to go for anybody who listen. Listen, these were not included in the canon. And, and, I, and I want to stress this, that though Jude quotes from them, I also want to remind us that Paul quotes from two secular authors as well. In the letter to Titus, he quotes from a secular um, person who writes about the Cretans. Um, And then Paul also, in Acts chapter 17, uses a Greek poet to talk about um, certain aspects about God. The fact that they quote from secular sources doesn't mean that those secular sources are inspired scripture. That's important. One of the things I want to say is this is that we must trust our church fathers who were closest to all of this, who understood things at the time, what needed to be included in the Scripture and what did not need to be included in the Scripture. But the fact that Jude quotes from the Assumption of Moses in First Enoch led many of the churches to say Jude shouldn't be in the Bible, and many people. As a matter of fact, if you were to go back to A.D. 200, and back in that time, the 2nd century and 3rd century, as the church went east, they rejected Jude as sacred scripture, but as the church went west, they affirmed Jude as sacred scripture. It was included initially in the canon. Both of these works were esteemed by the early church, as Jude writes that, but they weren't considered to be scripture. So should we read them? Well, you can read them, but just know that they are not inspired works written by the Holy Spirit. So there are two things as we begin to walk through the text for just a few moments this morning that I want to point out. Why should we be worried about truth? Why should we be concerned about biblical truth? Well, here's why. Jesus himself said this, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world world, to bear witness to the truth. This is Jesus before Pilate in John chapter 18. This is why Jesus came. There can never be an overemphasis upon biblical truth ever in our lives. This is such a necessity that every square inch of the planet, every nation, wherever it is, truth needs to reign and to be spoken. Truth is to drive the church in every manner at all times, and it cannot ever be abandoned for anything else. And this will be the consistent theme that runs through the book of Jude. So what do we need? What does the denomination need? What does a family need that is caught up 
and false gospels, false teaching. What it needs is to return back to the teaching of the Scripture. And when we return back to the teaching of the Scripture, we can get our lives and get a church, get a denomination, get a family, get a life back on the right course. So I remind us, our faith is worth living for and our doctrine is worth fighting for. Did you hear that? Our faith is obviously worth living for and living out and our doctrine is worth fighting for. Now we're just going to look at two verses in our remaining moments this morning. So look with me in Jude 1 through 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. First thing I want to note this morning is how Jude identifies himself. You want to know about somebody? You want to know about somebody who's in a position of leadership? Listen to the titles that they ask everybody else to call them by. Some people like to be called great grand names. And they want to be called that all the time. Jude, as he writes this letter, he's the half-brother of Jesus. And boy, could you not play that up? I am the half-brother of the eternal God. Um, I grew up with him. He was my big bro. He used to give me noogies and whatever. I want you to note this. Here's what Jude says. Here's how I identify my life. I am doulos in the Greek. Anybody know what that is? This is a response question. Anybody know what doulos means? Slave. Boy, listen to that. He didn't walk into a city and say, hey, everybody gather around. I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I got something to say. But here's the, the mindset that permeated and drove Jude's life. Yes, he's my half-brother. But I am a spiritual, physical, emotional, mental slave to the eternal God who, yes, was my half-brother. I am His slave. My life is surrendered to Him. And so here's Jude saying this. First of all, you want to know who I am? The greater thing about me is not that I'm the brother of James, which is pretty cool. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's my older brother. But my life is surrendered to the glory and the greatness of Jesus. And so I am Jude, slave to King Jesus. You know what slaves do? They do what the master tells them to do. And Jude is saying this, my great pleasure in my life is that I live the life as a servant of the sovereign and I am a slave of his. You see, our salvation becomes the start of our lifelong submission to Christ. And for Jude, his life's aim was to be used by Jesus in whatever way that Jesus saw fit. Listen to what John 7, 5 says. For not even his brothers believed in him. Sometimes faith in the maturity of faith is a process, Right? Did everybody figure it out immediately? Has everybody figured it out? No, it's a process, isn't it? But there are certain things that we do need to move on from. And here's what we need to move on. And I I, I pray you hear this this morning. That for all of us, we need to move on from shallow Christianity to a deeper aspect of Christianity. And Jude eventually does that. At one point in time, he looked at his brother Jesus and said, You're not the Messiah. I don't believe in you. If you're doing all these things, bro, go up to Jerusalem and and at the Passover and do them in front of everybody who's there. 
And John 7 tells us that he didn't go with them because he knew what they would probably be like and what they would do to him. So there was a time in Jude's life where he didn't believe. Was there a time in your life when you didn't believe? You said things about Jesus? Felt things about Jesus? Wrote things about Jesus? Absolutely. But listen, we cannot let those moments of lack of faith in the past define us today. We need to be be the kind of people that move beyond our lack of faith in the past and believe today in what's real and true and allow God to move in us and move us forward. We can't stay living in the past and everything that is connected with it. Once we come to know Christ, which Jew did, we move on in a relationship with him. You see, every one of us, as Jude says, I'm a slave to Jesus. Every one of us submits to something or we submit to someone. There's not a person in the room that is not doing that. But not all submit to the sovereignty and the glory of Christ. Jesus one day said this in Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and then despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in a day and time, even in church circles, and particularly in our culture, a world full of lies and sketchy teaching, we are to be the kind of people so steeped in the truth of God's word that there's not any world philosophy, there's not any kind of thinking and temptation that would hold sway over our lives. Jude put his head down into the glory of Christ and we are to do the same. Jude saw his life through the lens of being a slave to Jesus. And I tell you, I've been in places like this and I know that you probably have as well where there are certain people in their lives that every time they come into their life, they're always the smartest person in the room. Do you know anybody like that? We should never be that way. Even if we are, there needs to be a deep, deep humility to our lives that there's still things to learn. There's still things to grow on and to see in deeper ways. If you think that Jude is the only one that called himself a slave to Jesus. First Peter, Peter calls himself that. And Paul in Philippians chapter 1, in the greeting, calls himself a slave. But let me tell you three things that come from becoming a slave to Jesus. Three graces. We're called. We're loved. And the third grace is that we are kept. So I want to touch on these things. Look there in Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. I have great news today. For those of us in Christ and we're in a relationship with Him, we have been called by God into this relationship. He has initiated this relationship. This is not of our own doing. We are called to Him. In other places in the New Testament, this word called in the Greek is the same word for chosen. We are called. We are called into relationship. No one comes to the Father. You remember John 6? Unless the Father does what? Draws that person. So so Jude's saying, "You listen, I'm a slave to my half-brother who's the eternal king of the universe. And I've made my life submit to Him in every way. And because this is my life, there is a grace, there is a blessing that comes upon my life, a unique grace that comes to those who know Him. And that's this, that I have been called, I have been chosen. I am in a relationship with Christ. And we are called out of our old life and into this life with the Lord. This is a reference to our lives being sanctified by God. This relationship sets us apart uniquely to Him. So Jude says, listen, this is, this is true for me and it's going to be true for you. This, this, this part of, of the second part of verse 1 here, to those who are called their beloved in God, the Father, and 
kept for Jesus Christ. They are called, they are beloved, and they are kept. We are called by God into a relationship with Him. Secondly, we are loved by God. Do you know that? We are loved by God. You know what's interesting about this little verse here? It's the only place in the New Testament where it says that we are in the Father. Now, Jesus kind of makes reference to it, but if you look at Paul's writings, what does Paul say all the time? We are in Christ. We are in Christ. It's the only place in the New Testament where it's written that we are in the Father. So we, we affirm the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. One God, three persons. Scripture affirms it over and over and over that all three are God. So this is unique. The Father and the Son, Jesus says it over and over in the Gospel of John. We walked years looking through that as we spent a couple years walking through the Gospel of John. Jesus affirmed that all the, all the time, that He and the Father are one. So if we are in Jesus, naturally we are in who? We are in the Father. And we are in the Father because we are loved. We are in the family. We are in the family. Christ's followers are in the Son and therefore in the Father. So we are called by God, we are loved by God, and we are kept by Jesus or kept for Jesus. We are never left alone. God's children are not. So Jude writing to believers in the midst of great apostasy, a great falling away, people claiming to know Jesus, but teaching things that have nothing to do with Jesus. In the midst of that, he's reminding these people, you are called, you belong to God. You are the beloved of God. You are loved by God. And I want to remind you that as the pressure from Nero and Domitian and Trajan may come at you from the heavy arm of Rome, I remind you of this. You belong to Jesus. Jesus keeps you. Not you keep you, not your good works keep you, but Jesus, He's the one who keeps you. Two views of this. One is that we persevere. We call it sometimes the perseverance of the saints. That, that God, Philippians 1.6, that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to do what? To bring it to completion. So if we are called by God to Him and we're in a relationship with Him, we are loved by God, He's not going to allow Satan to come in and rob us and steal us from God. What a weak God we would have if that would happen and take place. So we are kept and preserved for all time and we are kept and preserved right here on the earth as we invest our lives in service to the king. Now I need you to hear this as we finish up here. If Satan could, if he could, do you not think that he would grab us a thousand times over from the hand of Jesus? Do you agree with me that he would do that if he could? Yeah. If we are not safe in the hands of Jesus, this we know to be true that Satan would grab us for himself, but he cannot grab us though. He keeps us for himself. But I tell you, he will try to convince us that we have no security. How amazing is this? We are kept by Jesus for Jesus. If you don't believe that, listen to this. Paul writing about the unique aspect of the marriage relationship also speaks about the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her that he, Christ, might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he, Christ, might present the church. Listen to this. That he, Christ, will keep the church so that he will present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she might be holy and without 
blemish. God preserves the church, does he not? In the gates of hell will not do what? They will not prevail. So if you are a part of the eternal, global church by salvation because you are called, you are loved, and you are kept, we have this going for us that Satan has no power to ever snatch us from the hand of Jesus. Jesus keeps the church, makes her pure in order that he would present her to himself. We are not alone. We are not alone in this reality. So you've got servants who have three great blessings there, grace gifts. They are called, they are beloved, and they are kept. And because of that, there are three practical blessings They come to us. Look with me in verse 2, and I'm just going to touch on these just for a second. This is a prayer of Jude to a group of Christians surrounded by apostasy. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy. Mercy is God's great kindness and goodwill to those who cannot help themselves and are in desperate for an intervention of God to do good on their behalf. And so when we speak of mercy, we are speaking specifically of God's goodness and kindness and love toward believers in this context who are in great need. Mercy is given to sinners who have great need. Mercy is given to saints who are in great need. And notice there is it's to be multiplied We get multiplication of mercy from God. Amen. How amazing that is. Not only that, we get the multiplication of peace, Jude writes. We get mercy and we get peace. The Greek word for peace here is tranquility, harmony, security, and prosperity. When you look further into the definition of peace... It points to all of our experience of all that God does in our lives. It brings a security and a peace and a settledness in us that we belong to God. Jesus said it like this in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus says there about peace, two unique things. I'm leaving peace with you. What did he mean by that? Well, I've come and I've done the work. I died. I bore your sin. I've risen from the grave. I have conquered death. Now I'm ascending to go to to heaven. But I'm leaving that work of peace, the work of salvation in you, and then I'm going to give you peace. What gift was that going to be? The Holy Spirit. Then I'm sending this peace. I'm gifting this peace. And Jesus talks about that in John 14, 15, and 16. This is an out-of-the-world kind of peace, not as the world gives do I give you. The world's peace is temporary, shallow, shaky, not true. The world is better at war than it is at peace. There's a certainty that His peace settles our heart and gives us great confidence John 16, 33. I have said all these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. That's what the world offers. But I want you to take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. These things I've said to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but you take heart I have overcome the world. And lastly, not only do we get mercy multiplied, not only do we get peace multiplied, we get love multiplied. A love that's lacking nothing and has no restraints to it. 
It is the only love that is unlimited, nor is there any kind of restraint to it. It's just poured out. And God's love grants unto us the security that we need in our days of trouble. So sometime around 68 A.D., we believe that Peter was crucified upside down somewhere around that time as well. The church was under a tremendous, tremendous trouble within it of people claiming to know Jesus but teaching false things. And the half-brother, little bro of Jesus had become a slave to his brother. He had yielded all of his life to him. And he looked around at the church and he realized that the great battle for truth was going to continue on. And one day through the inspiration of the Spirit, he was going to write another letter to this group of Jewish Christians. And he decides to write something else because he knew that they needed counsel. And in the ultimate wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit knew that we needed counsel, that we would live in an American culture one day that the, where the church had lost its way in many ways, embracing emotionalism instead of faith and other things that can sidetrack us and even just downplaying of who Christ is. We need this letter. And next week we're going to talk about what does it look like to stand firm in the truth of Jesus. Everybody okay? This is so important. Absolutely critical for us. So that's the backdrop of all of this that we'll begin to see over the next nine to ten weeks. Let's pray.